What was once a game that was played just in the parks of colleges on the East Coast to a now over $142 billion juggernaut. The game of American football has roots in this country dating back to 1869. This makes it one of the most profitable sporting leagues ever and has captivated fans to devoting their entire falls and the players their entire lives to the sport. Today on the Gems of History podcast, we dive into the history of American football. Yeah, I can't. There's I a copyright. I don't think I can change the intro music to that. Or we'll get yelled at. You should literally just leave in the part where it's just like every other note. Like, <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> like that. What an incredible topic to dive into. I'm hey, this one's, this one's going to be you guys. <laughs> this no, is definitely yeah. your wheelhouse, not mine. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, Cody has just. I think for as long as we've met, all we do is really just list old player names. Yeah, it's something that I can do at any time for football, especially football. I mean, other sports too, but football is just like, there's just something about certain eras, er, eras growing up with like your favorite teams and other random teams around the league that you just know, like NFC North, random, all the Bears quarterbacks that they have failed, like Kyle Orton, um, Rex Grossman. Oh, like, Grossman. Oh, Grossman. What a man. guy. Uh, Todd Collins there for Caleb Haney. I, I could go on forever. I don't want to go on forever. <laughs> Speaking of going on forever, welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. Boo, 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 boo. I am your co-host, Evan Roosh, and join with me as always, we have Jacob Shop. I'm sitting here with two-thirds of the critically acclaimed but short-lived oh, <laughs> Draft Day Preppers podcast, and I feel very out of place. It was a mini-series, I feel actually. It was, it, was a great a mini- run. it was a great run. But if you recognize that voice, it is the lovely voice of Cody Marenthal at C underscore Mar 54 on X. God, on this X. doesn't sound right anytime you say it. Right. But uh, if you recall, last year we ran the draft a preppers podcast a fantasy football podcast still out there it's it's out there i mean we have the rights to the name <laughs> I mean, if you listen to the first episode just turn the volume up all the way yeah also my some first. of the tips probably hold true still but oh for sure like the preseason tips definitely but yeah i remember editing that waking up like before work started trying to edit it and just being so confused. <laughs> and it's the wor- you don't want confusion in your life at six in the yeah, morning. <laughs> no. I usually save that for like 10 at night. <laughs> right. <laughs> just the polar opposite. But uh, how you doing, Cody? I'm doing good. We got a great topic today. When you asked me to do this, I was... In your totally unbiased opinion, a great topic. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Football has been a part of like mm-hmm. a huge chunk of my life and honestly i really don't ever i never researched how it began i just kind of jumped into it as like a fan and player coach whatever but um i'm interested to figure out how it began i think football is just one of those very exclusive sports that its history is so interesting 
basketball, they shot balls into peach baskets tight. Nice. That's not (laughs) cool. Baseball, I would say, also has that like mythical allure Mm -hmm. to it as well with Babe Ruth and some of the older figures of of baseball. Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. That that one was, baseball is definitely more of a highlight for like certain aspects of it, like the civil rights and everything Mm -hmm. associated with it. But yeah, football is kind of its own thing. It was basically Americans saying, how can we take soccer and make it more violent? Right. (laughs) And they definitely did. 100%. And yeah, today we, our topic truly is just the history of football ranging back from its creation, its inception, to kind of what it is today. It's a very, like it was very different doing research on this topic compared to other topics. Even last week when we talked about the trial of Socrates, like the man who invented psychology or excuse me, philosophy. And um, there's really not a ton around it past some like one of the, what one of his pupils wrote down. Right. Here we have everything. Yeah. Like we have every single <laughs> yeah. document. And like this is American football. We yeah. can't stress that enough. We're not talking about European football as in American soccer. The New We're Zealand about- listeners are pissed. Yeah, so <laughs> anyone that's listened, I'll make sure to put in the title American football so everyone knows. Right. So right. whenever we say football, we're talking American football. Right, right, right. But I guess with that, let's dive right on in. So American football definitely had humble beginnings. And to say that the actual concept of American football was this completely original idea, this new sport. That'd be quite a bit of an exaggeration. So the game of football is, even to this day, constantly changing with the introduction of new schemes, plays, personnel. For example, remember fullbacks? Yeah. When they were in the league in a very prominent league? Yeah, like they actually ran the ball like a lot. Right. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers literally had an incredible stretch just because of Mike Alsot and like that tandem. Yeah. But the first ever football game was actually known as college soccer football. Again, college soccer football. (laughs) (laughs) They just looked at a couple of different names and where they were and (laughs) combined the two. Where are we? College. What what, what, what kind of sports do they play here? Soccer. Well, they call it in Europe. (laughs) What what do they use? Their feet. (laughs) (laughs) And the first game was played with modified london football association rules so your typical rules of european football i'm going to keep on just calling it soccer because america we won the revolutionary war (laughs) gotcha for example players could only kick the ball and each score which was only called a goal and counted for only one point so you can only kick the ball only count for one point I do like that you said we won the Revolutionary War, so you can call it soccer, as if Britain's <laughs> the only place that calls it football. Exclusively at the Queen. <laughs> Exclusively. Yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Well, no, she can hear me. Yeah. <laughs> She's rolling in her grave. Didn't we? I think we one time did claim that we were the number one podcast of heaven, so. Hey, I'll take it. You're claiming she's in heaven, huh? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, unlike soccer or football, the game had 25 players on each side instead of the usual 11. The game featured Rutgers versus Princeton, known powerhouses now, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of big deals. And was played in November, or excuse me, on November 6th, 1869. But immediately you can tell, like, this is the high-class places that are playing this. It's not just the everyman. Right, the literal Ivy League. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because I think eventually it becomes like 
where people are literally getting off work to play football. Right. Well, yeah. and now like the biggest fan bases are in like the middle of Nebraska and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. It's so weird how it's transformed. Places where it's not high society, it's blue collar, and they just love love to see the boys social grit. <laughs> yeah, it's just it literally is just a bunch of farm kids in some of these places. Rutgers ended up winning this game six to four. Like I can't imagine watching this game. And some argue that this first game was more like the first intercollegiate game of soccer in America, but nonetheless, it was a start. Dartmouth followed suit, playing a football-like game in 1871, and by 1873, Columbia, Rutgers, Princeton, and Yale attempted to create intercollegiate football rules for the games they played, with Harvard refusing to join the meeting. That just sounds about right. Yeah, they immediately (laughs) off the bat were like, no. That sounds rough. It's going to hurt our little brains. (laughs) Just kidding. If you have a concussion, don't play. 1875 saw the earliest instance of what would better resemble modern American football, with Harvard facing Tufts University, where 11 men played, players could pick up the ball and run, and they would be stopped by tackling them. It would not be until 1876, however, at what is known as the Massowit Convention, that the first official rules for American football were formally written. And this is where Walter Camp of Yale, who is the man now known as the father of American football, first became involved with the game, being a chief pioneer and also instituting a multiple of rule changes, such as 11 men, as well as the forward pass, eventually... But uh, that, that one takes a while to get yeah, there. Yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> Just because there were too many deaths going on. But I do like that it took three years, because 1873, they all met, and they were like, maybe we should make rules. And then it just didn't work. So they waited for some other guy to come up and make the rules. We all like this Walter Camp guy. Let's listen to him. <laughs> I just know for a fact that there were some early football players that as soon as they said, like the committee said, we're, you know what? You can pass the ball downfield. There were probably so many that were like, that's going to ruin the game. Oh, that's pretty much why it took so long to get <laughs> too risky. Too, yeah, risky. too risky. That's why it took so long to catch on. Like they thought yeah. attendance was going to plummet because it was going to be boring. And they just didn't think that it was going to work. And I mean, for a while, it didn't work because the way they introduced it was kind of weird and it just wasn't productive. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But just think about the first ever game was six to four. Yeah. If a game like that happened today, we'd be scream I'd personally be screaming from the streets that why did I waste three hours when watching it's that? Twenty five guys on either side. So the ball's barely moving, I'm sure, because nobody can get anywhere. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I mean like that's your typical baseball game too. So like, Yeah. Oh my god. That's a high imagine. like I technically kind of a high scoring baseball game that's a barn burner yeah (laughs) unless you're the chicago cubs and you score like 36 runs in two games but not bad not bad decent decent so from 1892 to 1900s this is really an era which football was a major attraction of local athletic clubs and an intense competition between two pittsburgh area clubs the allegheny athletic association and the pittsburgh athletic club led to the making of the first professional football player. Former Yale All-American guard William Pudge Heffinger <laughs> was... Heffelfinger. <laughs> I know, but Pudge. <laughs> we'll call him Pudge. Pudge Butterfinger was... <laughs> he was paid $500, not bad scratch for 1890s, by the Allegheny Athletic Association to play in a game against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. 
and he became the first person to ever be paid to play football. The AAA, the Allegheny Athletic Association, won that game 4-0 to zero when oh, Heffelfinger picked up a PAC fumble and ran 35 yards for a touchdown. I, I read a little bit about this, and like the $500 translated to now is like over twelve grand for, for one game, which the starting salary for most NFL players is like 19000 to 20000 a game for like a base salary. Today? So he got, yeah, so he got paid like pretty well for that time period oh my gosh the other but the pittsburgh club was super mad that they paid him to play yep but they also tried to pay him 250 earlier (laughs) like earlier in the month and he said no so they just paid him more that's something that we won't dive in well in a few cases we'll dive in but in a lot of cases with early football there weren't contracts so teams could outbid other teams Four players. So you could play for one team one week and a different team the next week. It was a completely different yeah. situation. Yeah. It, I think I just love that his nickname's Pudge. And he was <laughs> right. probably like 230 pounds. But yeah. Like, yeah. Back then, that's always a load. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like your it's typical like like, dude. barrel chested boxer guy. <laughs> right. Oh, he ripped cigarettes at oh, that yeah. time. He was ripping darts. But that's actually pretty crazy. $500 just for one game. Yeah. Like, not super like organized quite yet, but mm-hmm. like, yeah. And this but, is played paid by an athletic club. Mm-hmm. Like this, it's not a billionaire. <laughs> but this is the huge difference from a starting point where it was all like athletic clubs and then eventually colleges that did this. So it was all of like the high flute and people who could afford to go to these places. Mm-hmm. And eventually like the Midwest gets introduced and then it becomes more of an every man sport. But it's just crazy how when it started these athletic club teams were better than the eventual professionals for years. And so all these professional teams are playing these college teams for practice because yeah. they can't, none of them can beat them. Like Notre Dame is the powerhouse team for years. It's so weird. It's also interesting. That's a great point with Notre Dame, how their tradition, like Notre Dame fans are nuts. Yeah. Their alumni are nuts about mm-hmm. football more so than just about any other college debatably. Because of stuff like this. Right. Because of the history on it. Football would slowly start to build up momentum and the popularity grew. The decade, or excuse me, the eight years between 1892 and 1900 featured the first ever pro football contract given to halfback Grant Dilbert. No fun nickname for that one. (laughs) And covered the Pittsburgh Athletic Club's games for a whole year. And the first player to openly turn pro, John Brailier collected $10 a game and travel expenses per game. Do you know what his travel expenses were? I'm guessing bus fare. Cake. <laughs> like cake as in transportation or cake as in booty. <laughs> Either one. Cheesecake. Cheesecake. <laughs> the contract didn't stipulate, so he could interpret it. Right, right. This, uh, this decade also featured the first ever owner of a football club, William C. Temple. Because he's just simply took on the expenses of the Duke when he's football club, which is when you think about in today's comparison, this man just paid, you know, for a leather helmet and maybe some cleats yeah. and owned a football team. This is the equivalent for uh, Crassus sponsoring an army. <laughs> right. <laughs> he owns the army technically. Right, right. Diving into the 1900s, baseball's Philadelphia Athletics, which was managed by Connie Mack and the Philadelphia Phillies, formed a professional football team, or excuse me, formed professional football teams. 
joined the Pittsburgh Stars in the first attempt at a pro football league named the National Football League. Dun, 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 dun. Boom, boom. <laughs> Copyright. <laughs> All three professional teams actually claimed the pro championship at the end of the season. But the league president, Dave Barry, named the Stars the champions. And fun fact, pitcher Rube Waddle was with the Athletics and pitcher Christy Mathewson, a fullback for Pittsburgh. So they were literally like double dipping. That's into- so funny that just baseball organizations decided, let's double up. <laughs> let's, right. Let's go on two sports. Guys, two teams. <laughs> two championships. <laughs> two championship teams. Especially nowadays, if a baseball player was like, I want to play football, they'd be like, absolutely not. Yeah, right. can you imagine yeah. if Otani decided, I want to go play in the NFL? <laughs> They're like, no, it's absolutely like, not. It's like you're about to make probably $500 million on a contract. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Easy. You know Guaranteed. What? Right. You're, probably. You're about, yeah, you're about to break records yeah. for like not only your stats, but how much money you make. He's like, no, I want to drive football. <laughs> I, I he does the reverse Michael Jordan. <laughs> I want to get concussions every day. Right. And then NFL contracts, they're not guaranteed. They're like all partially. So right. it's like, yeah. And <laughs> when a running back turns 28, it's like, ew, they're old. <laughs> In 1902, the first ever World Series of pro football, which actually was a five-team tournament, was played among a team made up of players from both the Athletics and the Phillies, but simply named New York. The New York Knickerbockers, the Syracuse AC, the Warlow AC, and the Orange AC at New York's original Madison Square Garden. New York and Syracuse played the first indoor football game before 3,000 people on December 28th. Syracuse with Glenn Pop Warner, hey <laughs> at guard, won 6-0 and went on to win the tournament. I love that they just couldn't go without nicknaming players for 90% of the people. They need a solid nickname. Yeah. Like Two Shoes Jackson or something. I mean, I guess if you name him Pop, you don't have to put his whole name on the jersey, so it saves you money. It's also very funny that Pop Warner, which is just what you call Little League football. Mm -hmm. His first name is Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Glenn Warner football doesn't have the same ring. It does not have the same ring one bit, but this is also, this time period, is also when one of the biggest scandals of football ever takes place. The Bulldogs-Tigers gambling scandal was the first major indignity in professional football. It was more notably the first case of professional gamblers attempting to fix the outcome of a professional sporting event. If you recall, there's a huge scandal around this time period of shoeless Joe Jackson and the Chicago White Sox, if I'm correct. Black Sox. Black Sox, thank you. They they didn't fade (laughs) in the wash. I want to say 1910 for some reason. Right, Uh, you're right. It was uh, 1919. Oh, 1919. Actually, I looked it up because I wanted to make sure I was right on that one. Right. So, excuse me, not not this decade, but yeah, the next decade. But this is, again, one of the first uh, examples of gamblers going to gamble. And on Monday, November 25th, 1906, allegations of corruption were made by, Massillian, by the Massillian Tigers manager, E.J. Stewart, and head coach, Sherburn Wetman. And it appeared in the Massillian Morning Gleaner. Stewart also happened to be the Gleaner's sports editor. With both teams undefeated and vying for the World's Championship, very funny to say. World's? <laughs> yeah. 
The Canton Bulldogs won the first game of two between the two teams, and Massillian won the second. Motivations for a possible third game in Cleveland then came under suspicion. The article written by Stewart in The Gleaner charged Bulldogs coach Charles Edgar Blondie Wallace. <laughs> These just make it seem like they what have preposterous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they accused them, uh, or excused him of conspiring to fix both games between the clubs. This created opportunities to rake in gambling profits as well as demand for a dramatic, decisive third game that would be played honestly and draw a big gate. So they were allegedly trying to manipulate trying to manipulate uh, ticket sales. Stewart claimed that Wallace, through East, attempted to bribe two of East's Tigers teammates, Bob Tiny Maxwell <laughs> and Bob Shearing. To assist in the scheme, while claiming that a pot of $50,000 was made available to be wagered, with $5,000 to be distributed to the Tigers' management and accomplices. So we're talking about pretty substantial bits of money here. Yeah. Maxwell and Shearing were indignant and reported the offer to Coach Whiteman, who turned the evidence over to Stewart. This loyalty by the two players supposedly ended the scheme before it began. However, when Stewart made the scandal public after Game 2, it started a media frenzy and civic pandemonium the likes that these two small towns had never seen. It, it's, so, it's such a weird scandal. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's so old-timey trying to set it up so that you have to play an extra game just so that you can make more money on ticket sales. <laughs> it's very boxing-like, kind of. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Take a dive in the fifth, Mick. Yeah, like, oh, you're one and one. Like, let's let's set up a big match for the third. Or, like, big game for the third. Like, final right. deciding who's better type deal. Well, and especially if you're setting it up for a third, then you have to win one and mm-hmm. lose one. So if you just know which ones you're doing, then you can bet on those two. <laughs> they won it kind of compounds on it. 1,000%. I also always just get looped into the hype on that. Like, oh, it's the third fight. Yeah. I guess McGregor Diaz 3. Mm-hmm. The marketing on those fights is so good. So good. So at this time, the game of football had a few rules, and it was extremely brutal. 18 people died playing football in 1905, with nearly 150 more reporting serious injuries. And the year before, there was like 15 or 20 people that died. So it was like regularly a double-digit thing. Right. Like, oh. There goes Jimmy. Just cracked his head open. <laughs> the game was in danger of being outlawed by President Roosevelt. But instead, good old Teddy Roosevelt forced rule changes to promote safety, including incorporating the forward pass and the line of scrimmage. And formed a committee with three founding fathers of football, John Heisman, ever heard of that, Amos Alonzo Steg, and Walter Camp. Two of those are huge names that there's... Alonzo. Stag. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the forward pass was pretty stigmatized originally in American football because the committees writing the rules made it hard to want to pass the ball because at the beginning, it was only allowed to be thrown more than five yards in front of or behind the line of scrimmage. And only the two outermost ends on the scrimmage line were allowed to make catches, which that isn't that much different, I guess, than what we have. You can just add tight ends and stuff in there. But the fact that you had to throw it more than five yards meant that 
these people who aren't accustomed to throwing the football had to throw it a in their eyes, considerable distance. <laughs> the quarterback is like, you want me to do what? <laughs> Wait, hold on. Well, any And anyone could throw the ball. Right. So it's just up in the air. Someone could just be like, hey, and throw it. And no one's going to be ready. There's no passing plays. And he takes the snap, throws it to John Brick Hands Maloney. <laughs> it just doesn't work. And then if it went out of bounds, the other team got the ball where it went out of bounds. If the pass hit the ground without being touched by anyone, it would be a turnover. So it's just, in every instance, not as profitable to throw the ball, pretty much. There's just so much risk attached to it. And the committee knew that because they wanted to make sure that the pass didn't catch on. Because people didn't want to watch. They thought people weren't going to want to watch it. They just wanted to see people brutalize each other in the flying wedge <laughs> these folks see the flying wedge oh so many concussions yeah that's how people are dying pretty much right they just see they transport these folks to today's nfl football and that's see patrick, patrick mahomes throwing for over five thousand yards first off they'd be like what do you mean thousands of yards <laughs> right and passing <laughs> the first play they'd like scream illegal oh they throw up (laughs) they throw up on the field so walter camp he was actually against the passing method but heisman was one of the ones that backed it along with other coaches like eddie cockums cockums i don't know how to pronounce his last cockums and cockums was the coach of st louis who's team went to go on undefeated in 1906 because of their passing methods and outscored their opponents in games 407 to 11 so he was on to something yes and he definitely had a good quarterback oh i bet like he was the best he's like yeah let's make this rule where i have the advantage probably well they were just one of the only teams that actually practiced passing so. yeah. <laughs> that is insane like it truly is insane to think about like the difference of the game but it had to only allow 11 points that's kind of, like you just had to have a good team yeah and no, no, nobody knew how to defend it either. It'd be like oh, this new crazy thing, and then well, and then you we wonder do? if the teams that they're playing know that this team they're coming up against is a passing team, so they're like, mm-hmm. we can do that, and then they just couldn't, and that's why they never scored. Right. So that just always makes me think of semi pro, where they invent the alley oop, oh, yeah. <laughs> like foul, foul, no, no two, two fouls, traveling. Traveling, I was jumping in the air. Can you do that? <laughs> People just can't be flying around in the air, Jack. <laughs> in jumping to the 1920s, pro football was in a state of confusion due to two or excuse me, due to three major problems: dramatically rising salaries for the players, players continually jumping from one team to another following the highest offer. Like I mentioned before, you could literally play for a different team every week. And the use of college players still enrolled in school. A league in which all the members would follow the same rules seemed to be the answer. In an organizational meeting at which the Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Cleveland Indians, and Dayton Triangles nice. were represented. <laughs> That's intimidating. And this meeting, can you imagine <laughs> Who the you triangles? Up this week? The Dayton Triangles. Yeah, sorry, the squares were taken. <laughs> I also love that Akron just called themselves the pros. <laughs> I know, right. I guess that's like Oakland calling themselves the athletics. <laughs> so <laughs> They couldn't think of anything like, you know what, we have athletes on our team, write that down. But this meeting resulted in the formation of the American Professional Football Conference. 
By the beginning of December, most of the teams in the American Professional Football Conference had actually abandoned their hopes for a championship, and some of them, including the Chicago Tigers and Detroit Heralds, had already finished their seasons, disbanded, and had their franchises canceled by the association. Four teams, Akron, Buffalo, Canton, and Decatur, where is that place? Decatur. It's Decatur, in it's southern yeah. Illinois. That's why we have the smart people on, <laughs> on, this, on this episode. Uh, but they still had a championship, or excuse me, they still had championship aspirations, but a series of late-season games among them left Akron as the only undefeated team in the association. At one of these games, Akron sold... T- <laughs> Akron sold tackle Bob Nash to Buffalo for $300 and 5% of the gate receipts. The first ever player deal. <laughs> so funny. And it was uh, in 1920 that the National Football League, as we truly know it today, was officially founded because the AP, excuse me, the American Professional Football Conference, APFC, uh, disbanded and became the formal NFL. But they sold someone at the game <laughs> at the game for 5% of the tickets. That's such a good idea though. Cause like, if you know, there's going to be good attendance, 5% of that, it's pretty good. Like yeah. that's when I went to, like when I went to Vegas and I, or this was actually in San Diego, I used an ATM there. And then instead of charging a flat fee of like $2 or whatever, they charge a percentage of whatever you take out. So if you take out a hundred oh. bucks and it's like a 5% charge, then you get like way more money than you would on just a flat fee. So it's percentage wise, it's a good way to do it. It's very like scummy and scummy, yeah. but it works. I'm going to Vegas in three weeks and I just know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but uh, after it was formed and like Chicago had disbanded their team in 1920, right when the NFL f- officially formed. But by 1925, Chicago had a new team known as the Cardinals, which eventually are going to move to Arizona. But started in Chicago. But 1925 was also the year that the NFL had another big scandal. So the Pottsville Maroons, who were like a small team from Pennsylvania, were in the league for only four years, and they had beaten the Chicago Cardinals to claim the league championship title. And this was big for Pottsville, since it was a small coal mining town, and the football team was kind of the only thing in the town that everyone, even like regardless of social status, rich or poor, they all could rally around the team together, so it was the one place where everyone was on the same playing field, theoretically. Or like, Sounds like every single town in the Bible Belt, yeah. <laughs> from, what, from what I'm led to believe by stereotypes and TV. <laughs> right. But at the time when Pottsville had beaten Chicago, the Chicago Cardinals, the team that won the championship was simply the team with the best regular season record. There wasn't any after play, there wasn't any playoffs after the fact. And that meant that the 14-2 and Maroons should have won the championship. However, at the time, there was a thing known as territories for each of the teams, which meant that each team had a certain section of, like, a certain area in the United States that was their territory. And if a team infringed on that, it basically meant you're taking sales away from the local Mm -hmm. team. So the next week, after the championship had been won, quote-unquote, the Maroons disobeyed the NFL and played against Notre Dame. But this meant that they went against the NFL's ruling and infringed on another team's territory. So NFL president Joe Carr suspended Pottsville from the league, meaning that they couldn't win the championship. 
So once this happened, the Chicago Cardinals saw their opportunity and decided to schedule two additional games in the season so that they could win them both and win the title. (laughs) (laughs) That is so slimy. And I bet they just picked the most lollipop, terrible teams right next to for those two games. Well, and the Cardinals had lost 21 to seven to the Maroons in the last game of the season. So they didn't deserve it at all. But the Cardinals, who are now in Arizona, are officially listed as NFL champions of 1925, despite the fact that they lost. And 1925 is now kind of considered the year that the championship was stolen from the Maroons. Almost quite literally. Yeah, <laughs> they, they stole much. it. But like I said, they wanted to play Notre Dame because they just wanted to see how they could compare to mm-hmm. the college team that was the powerhouse in the nation. And right. they actually did beat them. They were one of like the only professional teams to ever beat them like in this time period. So wow. they were just a really good team. Yeah, take that, Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, it, these early scandals are very funny because it's not organized in any way. Mm-hmm. So they can kind of just do whatever they want. And also to hand out that harsh of a punishment too. Yeah, like, just actually, you don't get the championship you're out of now. The league. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Billions of profits gone. <laughs> in the 1930s, the league would change drastically with a special meeting held in Cleveland, cutting 10 of the financially weaker teams in the NFL and leaving just 12. The league would go on to grow in popularity and establish two different football teams in New York, the Giants and the Dodgers. That's correct. The Dodgers were once a football team. (laughs) The 30s also featured a record-setting game played in front of 76,432 fans at Soldier Field, as well as the first televised game between the Dodgers and the Eagles. So, to summarize the 1930s, I don't have a ton in here uh, in my notes because a lot of it is just, and then this team won, and then this yeah. team won, and then this team won. Jim Thorpe, shout out. Yeah, he, yeah. he showed up. And then up. this team won. <laughs> so not a ton. Then but he went to go compete in the Olympics. Exactly. <laughs> but the 1930s, you can see that the popular... You can see that the popularity for the game is growing tremendously. 76,000 That's an insane amount of people. The Pfizer Forum, for example. Holds like 19,000. Right. And that, like, people just didn't have free time in the 1930s. Like, this was, this is the Great Depression. This was a huge event. Yeah. Like, this was, like, times are tough. Be able to travel, like, get there on time, do whatever you had to do. But, do you think that dads also got mad, like as mad as they do with like dealing with parking and traffic? As they, everyone's trying to park their they model A's. <laughs> yeah. That's. I wonder if they did like bring the family to the game, or they just like went with like. Oh, their it's just the boys. It's yeah. I don't know. It, it, I mean, it's kind of like we talked about in the Hollywood episode how families during the depression were just looking for something to escape from everything that was terrible about mm-hmm. life. So I wonder if that's kind of just why this popped off so hard is because everyone just wanted something different to do. Yeah. And I mean, they probably just saved their money and were like, let's go and forget that we're broke and starving for at least a couple hours. Just for a little bit. Let's yeah. forget that we're <laughs> eating imaginary pots of soup. Let's go watch people get, absolutely brutalized on a field (laughs) right but to your point just for that i need something to escape nfl tickets were in 1930 did not cost anything than what they did now oh yeah 
That's now why they're I mean, typically the, going. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say the league was still pretty young. So, I mean, they needed to get people there. So, it's not like they're going to be charging crazy prices for a on the come up type of sporting event. Guess, I just looked it up. Guess what the average ticket price for an NFL game was in the 1930s? A dollar. Uh, 45 cents. One dollar. Nice. (laughs) So it was like $20 now. Right. Yeah, Yeah. essentially 20 bucks. But still, that's 20 bucks now to go to a Green Bay Packers game. That's a steal of a lifetime. Yeah, done. Segregation in the NFL isn't discussed as much as segregation in baseball with icons such as Jackie Robinson. But the mid-1930s into the 40s saw no black players in the league, a time of complete segregation in the NFL. The first team to make strides toward ending segregation was the now Los Angeles Rams. However, you can't give them their flowers because it was very much by force. In the court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, the court ruled that the LA Coliseum couldn't lease their stadium to a team that was completely segregated. Thus, in 1946, they signed former UCLA star Kenny Washington in March and Woody Strode in May. Other NFL teams were slow to integrate their rosters. On the other hand, most of the teams in the All-America Football Conference had managed to integrate their teams in the late 40s. The AAFC later shut down and folded three teams into the NFL, the Cleveland Browns, Baltimore Colts, and San Francisco 49ers. I do. It's very sad that they only signed these guys just because they would have lost their stadium rights. That that sucks. (laughs) Right. I mean, you see it literally everywhere, even to this day. I mean, the business world, like you have to, you pretty much like you do have to interview like a person of color. Like this rule is very, very paramount throughout. And it's in this time in particular, it's like we have to hire on or sign a uh, person of color onto our team. It's sad that it's still around in some aspect, though. <laughs> You'd think we would have passed by that in 60, 70 years, but here we are. Right, right. But now, yeah. Most teams had begun integrating slowly by the early 50s. The exception to no one's surprise, <laughs> and you, you guys can guess the team. You may be looking at the notes, but if you didn't know, in your minds, guess which team was the last one to integrate people of color onto their teams. Listeners at home, I'll give you five seconds. Like, just think of the worst. I've recently had a name change. It is the Washington Redskins. Yay, you got it. Washington owner, then Washington owner, George Marshall, a man literally known for being (laughs) racist more than anything else, steadfastly refused to sign or draft black players. This extended all the way until 1962 when Stuart Udall, the Secretary of the Interior, threatened to revoke the team's lease on the stadium, which would have effectively evicted them. It's the same exact thing right. as, as the LA stadium. Exactly. It's so sad. So, to kind of recap that, NFL teams are starting to integrate in the 1940s, and it took to, the ni- to 1962 
for the Washington Redskins to be like, you know what? We'll let everyone play on our team. George Marshall. What a guy. <laughs> they know how to pick their owners, apparently. Oh my gosh. Now with the recent sale, right, of the Washington Commanders, formerly the Washington uh, football team. Yeah. Where, yeah, that that guy was just... Dan just that whole organization Dan is just Schneider, lie. I think he lied under oath recently about sexual assault allegations. So, Oh, yeah. Good. Good, good, good. <laughs> they, they they finally got him out of there. Well, right? Didn't, didn't their coach not know that they were eligible for the playoffs last year until a reporter told them, like, hey, you guys almost made it. And he's like, wait, we could have made it. We could have made it. Yeah. <laughs> their organization is... It's a mess. It's not something, well man. The 1950s were a tremendous time for the league. Integration, expansion, and impressive championship runs from teams like the Lions and Browns Helped increase popularity at a time when baseball fans were growing bored of the constant <laughs> Yankees World Series victories. And football was fastly becoming the popular new sport, so we weren't seeing as many, in the 50s at least, we weren't seeing as many dynasties as you had in the past. Because football in the early days was very much dominated by a select few teams. Like we talk about the Green Bay Packers, we're all Green Bay Packers fans. We talk about all of our world championships, most of them happening, well, a majority of them happening the first three yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that Super Bowls were a thing. Yeah. And even before that, winning NFL championships. But now I think people are probably going to get bored if the Chiefs just start winning it all. So <laughs> right, they're going to have to shift back to baseball or find a new sport entirely. Hockey is just going to skyrocket. That's It's honestly gotten a lot more popular lately. So. Online gaming. Dude, I was about to say, Esports yeah. are fun. <laughs> I spent like the last like, entire last week just watching Rocket League. So I was gonna say, is there like a big tournament going on? Or something? They just had the World Championship for it last oh. week. So I watched that for a lot of the last week. In twenty years, we're gonna be doing the history of Rocket League of the RLCS. <laughs> I'll I be know. like, I was there. I was there. Do you guys remember that show? I think it was on MTV, where it was just the Madden tournament. Yeah, a uh, Madden Nation. Madden Nation. Yeah. Yeah. They. It was I don't know how many people were in it, but let's say twelve, and then they played each other, and then eventually they like played a game at like Times Square, or something, yeah, like on like a big jumbotron type deal. I don't remember that because I was talking to girls. <laughs> <laughs> Got me there. This is when we need a YouTube show right now. <laughs> Your shirt, <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> so I'm wearing an anime girl shirt. It's is come full from, circle. Is here. that from Death Note? Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, yep. wait, I know that girl. That's also on me. <laughs> yeah, my life's really come around. <laughs> In the 1960s, the NFL also started facing competition from other leagues. In the 50s, after a failed attempt to buy an NFL team and bring them to Dallas, oil heir Lamar Hunt formulated plans to create a rival football league. The first official meeting between Hunt and other owners took place in August 1959. And by November, the American Football League, or the AFL, had its first draft. The AFL became more popular, and the leagues essentially found themselves in bidding wars, trying to outbid the other for draft picks, and even trying to poach players from opposing leagues. Dallas Cowboys owner Tex Schramm approached Lamar Hunt about a potential merger at this time. So, this is the first time where, since the establishment of the NFL, a true, genuine rival league popped up <laughs> and that exhibit's gonna come up in like 
50 years and be like, what about the XFL? Right. <laughs> <laughs> the XFL. Do you say exhibit too? I'm pretty sure he's the one that started it, didn't he? I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he oh. went from pimping cars to starting the XFL. Oh my God. So we heard your grandma. So we heard you loved your grandma a lot. So we put a <laughs> casket in your back and your trunk. And there's a TV on it. Yeah. So you can see. The craziest thing I've seen on the show. So you put like a fish tank in a trunk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's cool. But oh, no, how was, am I supposed to keep up with this? It was started by Vince McMahon. Not Exhibit. Sadly. I figured I, I thought it was WWE, but I didn't have the facts behind me. Yeah, I, I think I Why remember. I think Exhibit being like that. Vince, and then something about Donald Trump somewhere along the way. But he just has his hands and everything. Yeah, isn't it Dwayne Johnson now? Yep, he's running it. Yeah. Yep. But a series of secret meetings hammered out the details of the merger, and in June of 1966, the AFL NFL merger was officially announced. The combined leagues had 24 teams, including the newly formed NFL expansion teams, Atlanta Falcons and Miami Dolphins. And part of the merger would expand to 26 teams by 1968, which eventually led to the New Orleans Saints and Cincinnati Bengals. And 28 teams by 1970, which would be the Seahawks and the Buccaneers. It is kind of crazy that none, like a lot of the teams that are added later have never had to change their names or anything like that. Like they've remained the same since the late 60s. I think especially Cincinnati is hilarious. The Bengals. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah, who came up with that? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> we have so many tigers here. We just are the land of tigers and train wrecks. <laughs> okay. Ohio. <laughs> Another part of this agreement was that while the AFL and NFL would play separate regular season schedules, which would end in 1969, at the end of the season, before then, the league championship, excuse me, the league champions would play an AFL-NFL World Championship game. This was the first iteration of the Super Bowl. The NFL had the easy upper hand in the first two as the Green Bay Packers defeat the Kansas City Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders, respectively. Let's go! We're back! I'm so excited for Jordan Love, dude. It's love era, man. Dude, it is the summer of love. Baby. The power of love. The fall of love. The fall, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, not like the decline of love, like the the autumn of love. Right. Love has never been stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Except in the 1960s. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. In Super Bowl three, however, the AFL established itself as a league that could compete with the NFL because a man named Joe Namath, one of probably he truly is one of those people that's just like shrouded in lore and mm-hmm. mystery. And also, I think people at the time were like, this is the first hot quarterback we've seen. Yeah. Right? yeah. But he was the quarterback for the New York Jets, and they pulled off a huge upset against the Baltimore Colts, who were favored by a whopping 18 points. Speaking of the Baltimore Colts, we're going to get into them in a little bit. But before we get to that scandal, the 60s also had a bit of a scandal of its own because two of the biggest stars of the time were indefinitely suspended for gambling on football games. (laughs) Still a thing. (laughs) Didn't end in 1906 after that first time. So Paul Hornig of the Green Bay Packers and Alex Karras of the Detroit Lions were regularly betting hundreds of dollars on games with Hornig admitting, quote, I did wrong. I should be penalized, end quote. Oh. 
However, the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, made sure to emphasize that the two men had not thrown any games in the process. So it wasn't like they were intentionally losing games to make their bets more profitable. That wasn't happening. And both players were eventually reinstated after 11 months, with Hornung making a promise to stay away from Las Vegas and (laughs) with Karras selling a bar in Detroit that police claimed was, quote, frequented by known hoodlums. (laughs) Yeah, see? (laughs) Sell that bar. That is insane. And then, you just can't go into Las Vegas. Yeah, he's like, I'm done. Like, and you the, can't just bet your friend on the couch. <laughs> right. And then later, both men would be elected to the Pro Hall of Fame. Not for a while, but like, yeah, they're both in there now. So that's like the opposite mm-hmm. of like baseball with like right. Pete Rose, Pete Rose. All this, the steroid era. I, I kind of wish, I mean, football aside, I kind of wish those baseball guys would get in because it is part of like sports right. history. Yeah. I kind of wish the steroid era would come back just so we can have people hitting dingers just so we can all watch the freaking time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is this? 30 home runs a season nonsense. I want to see, I see, I see Sosa when and a, Mark McGuire. When a pitcher is leading the home run count in part of your league, like, right. come on, guys. <laughs> in the 1970s, the merger had now allowed for the NFL and AFL to be combined into one NFL. The Colts, Browns, and Steelers of the NFL agreed to, with the 10 existing AFL teams, to become the American Football Conference, while the remaining NFL teams were the National Football Conference. I don't think this has changed, to be honest, like ever since this I was going to say, I didn't really I don't think this has really changed. I never really knew how they got like the two conferences in the, in the right. NFL. I never understood that yeah. until doing this. It was really the 1970s where the NFL began to take shape into what it is today. Seattle and Tampa Bay were added as teams, like we mentioned before. The Boston Patriots became the New England Patriots, and the Super Bowl became a much bigger deal, thanks to several teams becoming dominating powerhouses, destroying the league, (laughs) terrorizing the league, and making the Super Bowl on multiple occasions. For example, from 1970 to 1979, the Dallas Cowboys went to five Super Bowls, winning just two, however. Take You're that. that, Dallas? You used to go. Yeah, remember that? No, <laughs> remember you don't, because you, you weren't born. Remember when you won <laughs> playoff games? Instead of losing the Packers, Aaron Rodgers' drive, probably the best drive of all time. <laughs> yeah. Mason Crosby, game winning field goal. No big deal. Very isolating to anyone who's not a football <laughs> fan. America's team. The Pittsburgh Steelers went two and won three Super Bowls during this era and a fourth in the January of 1980. And the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> went to four Super Bowls. However, they lost all four. People who are Vikings fan, like, I, I give you props because you guys just have never had anything to bring. You just want to, like, <laughs> touch them on that, like, dap them on the head, sprinkle their hair a little bit. Like, you'll get it someday, young and, and now they just have one of the nicest stadiums in the NFL. It is, it literally looks like a evil billionaire's lair. It does. From the outside. It looks, no, it's it, look, supposed it, to be like a ship. You know I think what it, yeah, yeah, I think you're ship. right. Yeah, you know yeah. what it looks like? It looks like where the Avengers would stay. <laughs> Apparently, it is a regular bird killer because birds run into the window, fly into the windows. <laughs> that was the secret motive behind it. No, I'm going to say that's, that's pro- on birds. <laughs> that, 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 yeah. No, that's definitely an NFC North fan 
biased. Oh, that, yeah. like, <laughs> that stadium, they're bird killer. It's the bird killer. Yeah. <laughs> Falcons, Eagles, Seahawks. Cardinals. Don't come here, Cardinals. Yeah. yeah. Ravens. Ravens. There's a lot of, There's bird, a lot teams. of bird teams. <laughs> what the heck? How did we end up at? Pa- well, I know, I know the story of how we ended up at Packers, but very funny that we hear the Packers. And at then least we we're not the Fudge Packers. The Indian Packing hey. Company. You're actually not wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you are right. Yeah, sorry. You guys <laughs> are the football guys. You yeah. should know this. Do you want to tell that story while we're, oh, while man, we're talking about I, it? I, not really. I mean, back I'll then, handle it. <laughs> it. Honestly, it just seemed like a like rec league when mm-hmm. they started. That like this packing company just kind of paid for uniforms and people showed up after work and played. And yeah. then eventually Curly Lambeau got really serious about it and serious enough to form a professional team. Basically. Five hundred dollars, if I'm not mistaken, to start the Green Bay Packers, yeah. which is now I believe a top five most profitable franchise in the NFL worth like four point three billion dollars. Very bias aside, I really do think it's like one of the craziest stories in all of sports that like there's this billion dollar team in this like little town that hasn't <laughs> been like pushed out or can't they can't move. Yeah. Like, they can't there's like no way. <laughs> I would be, I would be lay voted down on by the front. shareholders. Like yeah. the shareholders would have to be like, yeah, we don't want a team anymore. Yeah. I happen. also think it's crazy that we have such a small market team, but we still are competitive every year. Like we're not like a a huge franchise that can just afford to trade to buy players and stuff. Right. So yeah. it's all homegrown talent, baby. <laughs> God, I love being a Packers fan. During the 1970s, the Miami Dolphins also went to three straight Super Bowls and won two of them. Not as many as the previously mentioned teams, but the Dolphins also did something none of those teams accomplished, the perfect season. A 14-0 regular season in 1972, two playoff wins to clinch the AFC, and a Super Bowl win over Washington meant they were 17-0 with the championship. Only one team since has had an undefeated regular season. They're still the only undefeated championship team, so the Dolphins, which I think is a huge part of why they're still such a profitable organization. But yeah, but then the Browns said, well, can you do this? And then they lost almost two straight seasons of football games. Said, <laughs> so Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. But Evan, guess what else happened in the 70s? I'm guessing another some sort of hijinks, hooligans. Scandal? Yeah, scandal? yeah, more scandals. So in the season opener between the Oakland Raiders and the Pittsburgh Steelers, defensive back George Atkinson mm. delivered a concussive hit to the Steelers receiver Lynn Swan. And the next day, the Steelers coach made a statement about George Atkinson saying, quote, There is a certain criminal element in every aspect of society. Apparently, we have it in the NFL, too. End quote. So this statement then pushed Atkinson to sue the coach, whose name was Chuck Knoll, for defamation, but ended up losing the case to Knoll. However, in the case, Knoll mentioned one of his own players as part of the so-called quote-unquote criminal element. And then that player also sued Knoll, but dropped that $6 million lawsuit after an eight-week holdout from training camp. Yeah, this man just... Went into court and said things yeah. like a lot of things about anybody. Maybe it'll be better if I say one of my guys too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that guy, like it's the '80s, right? So he's just—I don't know—maybe taking a Sunday drive in his new car with his bow. He he went into the settings and turned friendly fire on. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 
But in the 1980s and 90s, the NFL was now an institution. In the 1980s, the Super Bowl was regularly getting over 80 million televised viewers. And as such, it was time for some more millionaires to try and compete with it. We love to see millionaires taking everything we love. (laughs) (laughs) Making it worse. The United States Football League, or the USFL, lasted for three seasons and perhaps could have lasted longer if not for its hubris. Beginning in 1983, the USFL played their games in the spring instead of the fall, and rosters boasted players such as future NFL Hall of Famers Jim Kelly and Steve Young. But the owners, led by New Jersey Generals owner Donald Trump, ever heard of him? <laughs> Made the decision to move, also in the news recently, (laughs) Don Trizzle. (laughs) Day Trizzle getting indicted. Yeah, in Dizzle. (laughs) (laughs) But he decided to move their games to the fall in an attempt to directly compete with the NFL. A big part of this was filing an antitrust lawsuit against the NFL that alleged that the NFL had established a monopoly that pressured major television networks into not broadcasting fall USFL games. This case went to court, and the jury, after deliberation, found that the NFL did, in fact, have a monopoly, but did not find it to be at fault for the USFL's problem. You're right, but we're not going to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) You have a point, but have you seen Dan Marino... Throw that pigskin. Get an ambulance. You see but not for me. me. <laughs> you see the steel curtains defense? Right. <laughs> What's that in the USFL? And honestly, the jury probably was filled with football fans that just did not want to deal. Like, you mm. do not take my NFL Sundays <laughs> They literally from me. just told him to get good. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> essentially. A skill, skill problem, bro. <laughs> this is the best part of all this. The USFL, like Jacob mentioned, technically did win its case, but was awarded $1 out of the $1.7 billion lawsuit that it brought to court. A small loan of $1. (laughs) Don't spend it all in one place. (laughs) You could buy a ticket to a game in the 1930s. In the 1930s, exactly. The USFL folded soon after this. The NFL, meanwhile, continued to thrive, and the dynasties of the 70s were replaced by that of the San Francisco 49ers. The Chicago Bears and New York Giants, two of the oldest NFL franchises, used legendary defenses to get their first Super Bowl championships. Congratulations to the Giants. I meant that very purposely. Another team of the 80s and 90s that thrived were the Denver Broncos, thanks to their star quarterback, John Elway. Elway's Broncos went to five Super Bowls, winning the last two. He was also an important part of what we know as modern free agency in football. According to Sports Illustrated, when negotiations were going on to establish what free agency would look like, Broncos owner... Broncos owner... (laughs) Pat Boland's fear of the Brankers. Pat Boland's fear of losing his quarterback led to what is known as the franchise tag, which is the bane of every running back's existence nowadays. And the franchise tag is basically where a team was permitted to choose one player per free agency season that they could tag and give a hefty one-year contract to with the hopes of a long-term deal 
beyond that year getting finalized. But a lot of teams nowadays truly just use that to put off, you know, paying someone anything. Nice. So, so they took something useful and made it useful for them. <laughs> they took something that truly was meant to help the player. Like you get a ton of money in one year, more than just about anyone else at your position. One it incentivizes, but you don't have long term guarantees. Yep, and it incentivizes players to do well. <laughs> like you would think that it would be a good thing for everybody, but I guess not. Not in this NFL. So earlier we mentioned the uh, Baltimore Colts, if you might remember that. So one thing that happened in the 1980s was the fact that the Colts, who are now located in Indianapolis, basically left their original home in Baltimore overnight. So the reason for this was the attendance was declining in Baltimore and the stadium was really outdated. So the Colts owner, Robert Ursay, threatened to move the team. In response, on March 27, 1984, Maryland passed a bill to allow Baltimore to seize the team. <laughs> but during a snowstorm the next night after the bill was passed, the Colts moved everything out of their team facility with the help of a moving company run by a friend of the Indianapolis mayor. And in some scathing words from the Baltimore Sun, the city didn't hold back on Ursay after this, stating, quote, there was something grossly fitting about Robert Ursay taking off by cover of night during a storm, lacking even the common decency to inform the mayor of Baltimore of his decision. What a pity that Baltimore's love affair with the Colts must end in such an unseemly manner. But 12 years later, 12 years later the NFL returned to Baltimore, so it didn't really take that long for them to get another team. I could not imagine. Like... <sighs> I would, and you can't cheer for that team. They literally left you. So it's not like, oh, they just, they got moved to a new city by the NFL or something like that. Like, he must, Robert Ursay, yeah, Robert Ursay must not have been. Jim dad. He must almost never go in Maryland, ever. The Ursays are not welcome. At least, like. There's no way. He'd get jumped. Oh, in Baltimore? Yeah. (laughs) Or anywhere, (laughs) anywhere, honestly. Like, but I do, I love that. They said the words like, oh, this love affair that we have with the Colts, even though nobody was going to games. That's why they left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Like they left for a very specific reason. This isn't making us money. Yeah. And then Indianapolis is like, we'll pay you money to come here. Mm-hmm. And then they helped them move out of the stadium. And now they have the biggest stadium, I believe, in all of the NFL. Lucas Oil is, I think it fits, I mean, I think the most. It holds a combine pretty much every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Big Ten Championship. It's a bit. It's a huge football area. That area, you know, right? Huge money maker. So it looks like MetLife Stadium is the biggest, according to Google. Uh, well, I mean, they share two teams: the Giants and Jets. So right. I might as well make it the biggest, right? <laughs> The 2000s saw a dynasty that still exists in the NFL nearly two decades after their first Super Bowl victory, the New England Patriots. Psych, they are actually done now. But the Patriots (laughs) had been to just two Super Bowls prior to the 21st century, losing to the Bears in the 80s and the Packers in the 90s. Shout out Brett Favre. Bill Belichick's Patriots weren't expected to dominate at all, but an injury to starting QB Drew Bledsoe in 2001 led to second-year quarterback Tom Brady taking over. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's... Tom I mean, Brady, might have heard of him. Tom Brady over Drew Bledsoe. Drew Bledsoe, I think he's also a Hall of Famer. He's Lou Gehrig over Walter he, Pitt. Like, he was like a 
probably a top ten quarterback back then. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not sure if he's a Hall of Famer, but I mean, for that to happen, man, that really sucks for Drew Bledsoe. <laughs> Drew Bledsoe was in one of the backyard football games. I do remember that distinctively because I was like, "Who the hell is this?" So does he really even need the Hall of Fame? Then? No. If you're if you're up there with Petey Pablo and not Pete Pablo, Pete. Pete no. Wheeler and Pablo Sanchez. Oh yeah, Pablo Sanchez. Pablo Pete was. Pablo is a rapper. <laughs> Pablo Sanchez was oh, backyard baseball goat. He is the goat. Yeah. But a solid year for Tom Brady and a good defense led them to a massive upset over the St. Louis Rams, who were kind of forming their own dynasty in their own right, in the Super Bowl in 2001, and Brady was named MVP. Two years later, they won again. The year after that, they won again. Suddenly, the Patriots were a dynasty and with three Super Bowl championships in four years. What is that? <laughs> There's just some ghost noise coming that, out it in it the basement. Like it sounds like a cricket. It, but they'd be making more noise if it was a cricket. It sounds like it's dying. Mm. This is what we have to deal with in the studio. <laughs> You're right. With Brady at the helm, Belichick created elite teams and developed a reputation as an all-time great coach. This culminated in the first ever undefeated 16-game season, which the Patriots achieved in 07, thanks to a record-breaking year from Brady, but they were upset by the New York Giants in Super Bowl 42 and left them without a title to show it. Since 2001, the Patriots have been in eight Super Bowls, winning five of them. The other big change for the NFL in the 2000s was the commissioner's office. In the middle of the decade, Commissioner Paul Tagliablu. Yep. In the middle of the decade, Commissioner Paul Tagliablu, Paulie T, announced his retirement. And in August of 2006, the NFL owners voted to make Roger Goodell, a longtime NFL employee, the new commissioner. Boo. Boo. <laughs> More like Roger Boodell. Boodell. <laughs> Got him. Goodell inherited a cultural and media juggernaut, one that to this day and probably to the end of our days runs the media cycle. Yeah. In the former commissioner's tenure, in Polly T's tenure, the NFL grew exponentially, and the one attempt at a new football league during that time, the XFL, was roundly mocked and lasted just one season. Goodell was now the commissioner of arguably the biggest professional sports league in America. You know, I'm not too upset that the XFL folded right away now that I know Vince McMahon was the one that founded it because he's kind of an asshole. Yeah. N- another another not great rich guy. <laughs> another, yeah. One of our worst. <laughs> Jumping forward to today's NFL, we've been struck with quite a bit of controversy since So since Goodell took over, the NFL has continued to thrive, but, however, quite a bit of scandal. The 2011 NFL lockout was the first labor dispute the league has had since 1987 and lasted 18 weeks. Another scandal was the 2012 referee lockout, where a labor dispute led to the NFL starting the season with replacement referees. Blown calls throughout the first three weeks of the season embarrassed the league and energized contract negotiations that led to increased wages and a 401k for referees. You hear that, NFL? 
that's the consequences of your actions. Yeah. <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> You're looking at the mirror. Was um that uh fail Mary the Packers Seahawks? Was that the last game refereed by the um replacement refs? Yeah, I think it was week if I remember right. I think it was like week three or four. And that happened, and the league was like, enough of this. You're welcome, everybody. And it just, yeah, it just had to be us. <laughs> yeah. But 2012 was also the year that saw New Orleans Saints head coach Sean Payton being dealt a full-season suspension after details emerged about some of their sinister off-field practices, which, according to reports, was Sean Payton incentivizing his players by asking them to show excessive violence towards certain players in return for payments and other off-field rewards. So not not a good look for a team to be doing that. You know, I it, it's kind of crazy that you think he would like not be allowed to coach again, but just a year suspension. Yeah. Yeah, but here we are. T- take take a vacation for a year, come back, re, you know, re-energize and you're good. Didn't they call that bounty gate? Yeah. yeah. The classic throw gate at the end of every single <laughs> As scandal. in the next thing we're talking about. Right. Too, yeah. Deflate gate, a scandal about whether Tom Brady was aware of Patriots employees deflating footballs, was the next scandal. The NFL suspended Brady for four games, a decision that got reversed by the U.S. District Court and then reinstated by the U.S. Court of Appeals, which saying that out loud is extremely ridiculous. The yeah. <laughs> U.S. Court of Appeals had to rule on whether the balls were inflated or deflated. Well, then there was also, I think it was before this, there was Spygate, which was the Patriots filming New York Jets practices, and then the NFL just destroyed the tapes. And then Spygate 2, <laughs> so it's just Spygate 3. Yeah. <laughs> but then it, it's so sketchy to just be like, nah, they didn't do that, and then just say you burned all the tapes. And then, yeah, get rid of all the evidence. That's that's not sketchy at all. Plenty hmm. of scandal in the NFL. It's, it's almost part of it. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Oh my god, yeah. But if you try it in the uh, MLB um, Astros, oh, yeah. you're going to get <laughs> railed for it. Yeah. For years. Yeah. yeah. It's also been during Goodell's term as commissioner that punishments for domestic abuse allegations by NFL players have been deemed insufficient, stemming from a two-game suspension to Ravens running back Ray Rice after being charged with assaults, a very public altercation that was caught on an elevator video and i don't rec i don't, don't recommend yeah. you know watching if you're not familiar with it because it is very gruesome but during this time a lot of these videos do come out and the nfl typically has been very lackluster in their punishment of dealing with domestic abuse allegations and straight up just being Charged for domestic yeah. abuse and abuse. I mean, similar suspensions for domestic is for domestic abuse as like drug, like mm-hmm. weed, which is like now with states legalized, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, that they get the same punishment. Right, it's gotten a tiny bit better, but still definitely not good enough. Like we money still runs the league, right? Unfortunately. Like we mentioned before, Tom Brady got four games for deflated balls. Ray Rice. I mean, we've two a games. lot of us have seen Initially the video. Two games. two games. There's a video of him doing that, and Tom Brady supposedly. There's no video of him yeah. doing it. I mean, but that's the thing with like 
any it not even sports related anything nowadays it's like unless there's a video of it people are gonna like have way different reactions and then once they see it they're like oh okay (laughs) oof yeah (laughs) not good bob Goodell's and the NFL owner's inability to address players kneeling during the national anthem to protest police brutality in a way that did not make things more controversial, particularly when they voted on a policy requiring players to either stand for the anthem or stay in the locker room without consulting the NFLPA. Not long after, the NFL announced that there would not be a new rule regarding the anthem. So, if you're familiar with football and the crazy four or five year stretch that we've had uh, of players kneeling for the national anthem. The NFL has not really handed that well. This does, this is a very divisive topic, so we won't get into it too much, but the owners and Goodell's handling of the situation was very poor in my opinion. And uh, it caused it to be quite, quite a scene and probably more divisive than it really should have been. Well, and it's just sad, too, because, like, Colin Kaepernick essentially got kicked out of the NFL over Black this. Blackballed, basically. Blackballed, yeah. yeah. And, like, we just talked about Ray Rice got two games suspension for literally beating a woman. And, that we've all seen. Yeah, like, so it's just, it's interesting that choices like that are being made on certain aspects of it. And then mm-hmm. he didn't break any rules. He didn't do anything that was, because they didn't make a new rule. So he didn't technically do anything wrong right it was just that public perception was against him so kick him up right right but in conclusion the game of football is shrouded in legend heroes and controversy much like america itself is a game filled with violence and oftentimes does not have the player's interest both financially and physically as its focus despite this the game of football remains one of the most popular sports with the Super Bowl garnering over 100 million viewers worldwide, despite only having pro teams in the USA and only being a one-day event. So if you compare it against the FIFA World Cup, the Olympics, etc., it comes in roughly ninth in the most watched televised event of each year, like in the entire world, with the FIFA World Cup being number one at billions because it's multiple countries yeah. football or soccer foot european football whatever is a lot more popular in the world but for one country being so invested into a sport and being ninth on that list that's pretty incredible well you, i mean we did kind of ship off like oh we're coming to play in london Ooh, german so, so it's not like they haven't tried <laughs> to get out there but yeah, it is still pretty impressive for a primarily one nation sport. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, and yeah. I think by like, I don't know what Good- what Goodell said. Twenty thirty, they want to have a team in England. Mm-hmm. I I really don't see that how that would be viable travel wise. Yeah, it doesn't like, seem very financial. It, and also be like a very like competitive disadvantage. Or I mean, what if players don't want to live in England? Maybe some do. I'm sure some of them wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't. No. <laughs> Who are you going to scrimmage in the offseason? Right. Like, like, I don't know. It, it's trying to grow the game, but we'll see. Right, right. But the history of football. America's, American football. American football. I need to make the distinction. <laughs> but it's, uh, 
it truly is crazy to think that it was a game called college soccer football. Yeah. And now it's a multi hundred. It's like a hundred billion dollar industry just in the NFL. Now we have gambling, which puts on billions more. Mm -hmm. The NCAA, each team makes roughly, if you're a D1 school, makes roughly $31 million. There's 130 NCAA Division One teams. So like, you do that math. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a, it's a sport. It's a sport that truly dominates our culture. Yeah. I mean, it owns, like, Sunday. Like, that my Sundays it does at least like waking up I'm getting ready to watch the games like for sure like I'm looking forward to that all fall like the time when basketball ends basically in like June to like September I like baseball but man it does not give me the same type of it's itch too as many football games <laughs> I like just feel that little brisk chill in the morning and I just know know that football is around the corner but yeah. Football definitely has its problems. We'll never oh, deny yeah. that. But it truly is America's sport. But Cody, thank you a ton for coming on to the show today. Do you yeah. have anything that you want to plug past your Twitter handle or anything else? No, I don't really have anything to plug. It was really fun to hear the start of football because I, I'm a big football fan. Obviously, I've never really want, not wanted, but I've never really done the research of how it started and I mean to know that like it's based soccer. Thank thanks soccer for Shout the creation soccer, yeah. of football. <laughs> Everyone like, when we say soccer, that's not an American. It's yeah. just cringing, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Like, and people who like like football are usually like, "Oh, soccer's the worst." But really, we have to thank that sport for yeah creation of America's probably new pastime. Right, that and rugby, I would say, are yeah, rugby definitely too, the yeah. two biggest influences on it for right. sure. I uh, forgot to mention this at the top of the show, but my sources were the Pro Football Hall of Fame, thestreet.com, and profootballnetwork.com. Thestreet.com. Right, I know. That was... In these streets. In these streets. <laughs> uh, so before Evan plugs our social medias, I just want to put out a note that it's almost spooky season already. Like, it's come up so much faster than I thought it was going to. Huh. But Scared me with right that there. being said... As if you if you're a new listener, we like to do a an episode in October where we'll if people send us their personal scary stories, whether it be ghost stories or like a true crime thing or aliens, whatever you think is the scariest thing that's happened to you. If you want to send those into us, we will read them on the show in that episode. But to do that, we need you guys to send in those stories. So if you want to send in stories for that, you can email us at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com and just put in the subject line, spooky story or listener story, whatever you want to put, we'll figure it out. Or just, uh. Uh, yeah, or just <laughs> ghost emoji. <laughs> how, uh, how long do these stories have to be? Not very long. Not very it can long. be as long it can as just you be like. Just I mean, like one happening. Yeah, the more details, the better. Obviously, because mm -hmm. then we can get a better feel for it. But if it's just some short little thing that happened, feel free to send it in. So yeah, you can send it. We prefer if you send them to our email. Evan is going to mention all of our social medias. If you want to send it there, you can. It's just easier for us to format everything if it's in the emails. So I just wanted to get that out there first. Definitely appreciate it. But you can continue the conversation about the history of American football or submit something for spooky season. Like Jacob mentioned 
at any of our social media handles. First off, on X, at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. Again, Cody, thank you for joining us. He is at CMAR54. CMAR underscore 54. Uh, C underscore Mar 54. Thank you. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Patreon at Gems of History Podcast. Just search us or search that in the search bar and you'll be able to find us. Haven't talked to Evan about this yet, but I'm going to say it on the air. I'll cut it out if it's not good. But I was thinking for our Patreon members that if they wanted to, for that spooky story episode, we could Skype you in and you could tell us the story on the air. Down. So oh. if that sounds like something that you'd want to do, go sign up to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Gems of History Podcast. And Jacob also has not heard this, but if you don't want your voice in the episode, he can just put on an easy filter to disgruntle or like distort it. <laughs> yeah. Wait, for real? Yeah, I have oh, no that idea. That sounds so cool. I have I no idea. I could definitely try. <laughs> but, <laughs> but probably not. Let's see. So, that sounds so like a lot. This is all work in progress L- that we're like talking those about. crime this shows a- where... Yeah. yeah. This <laughs> is all <laughs> alleged. <laughs> So yeah, if you if you want to get on the show, that is a way to do it if that sounds like something you'd be interested in. But we we love getting you guys involved in any way we can. So it, it helps us get to know our listeners better and that way you guys get a cool experience out of it. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you want to get in, involved on that, then go sign up for the Patreon before the middle of October, I guess. So yeah, I think that's all I got. Yeah, that's all we got. Cody, got anything else? I don't. I'm ready for for football season. It's so close. I'm so excited. I can't wait to dominate the fantasy league now that I'm in it. I can't wait to make a sh- a lot of soup. <laughs> Just a lot of soup, soup and season. chili. Soup oh, yeah. season. I'm honestly Bro, I ball out so at soup and chili. They say when um, training camp starts, that's when soup season starts. I have heard that. Me too. The whispers on the wind. <laughs> it's not winter's coming. Winter's coming. It's like minestrone soup is coming. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. We love you all. Stay polished.